Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at cccLife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Question. Uh, Is it okay for grown men to cry in public? What do you think? Is it okay? So I read uh, an online article about this topic recently. And according to the article, the answer to the question, is it okay for grown men to cry to cry in public? The answer is, it all depends. <laughs> it all depends on what they're crying about. Uh, there are good reasons to cry, and there are bad reasons to cry. And so the article went on to give examples in each category. So some examples of grown men who cried for, for good reason in this article, you got Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, general of the Allied Forces in World War II, Normandy. Uh, They're about to storm the beaches D-Day, and he's giving his men a pep talk. He knows that the probable casualty rate is 70%. And so as he gives them the the heave-ho, there are tears in his eyes, according to those who were there. Good reason, good reason for a grown man to cry. Another example that was given in the article, uh, Anderson Cooper, well-known news anchor for CNN. Years ago, he was sent by CNN down to, to uh, New Orleans to inspect the damage that Katrina, the hurricane, had done. He spent four days down there witnessing the horrible devastation, the death, the destruction, and finally he was interviewing some desperate evacuees, and as the camera rolled, so did tears right down his face. Good reason for a grown man to cry. Uh, Even in the world of sports, there are good reasons to cry. Tiger Woods, 2006, he lost his dad to prostate cancer. His dad had had been his best friend, his mentor, his inspiration, and Tiger's golf game fell apart. Hard to believe if you saw him win the Masters last week, but his golf game fell apart. But then he entered the British Open back then, and he declared that he was playing for the sake of his deceased dad. And he won the championship, and as he sank the final putt, he embraced his caddy, and he sobbed and sobbed. And everybody thought that's a really good reason for a grown man to cry. Now, according to the article, there are also uh, some examples of bad reasons that men have cried in public. One of the ones I got a kick out of... uh, 1952, Richard Nixon was running for vice president of the United States, and he was being hounded by the press who accused him of accepting illegal campaign contributions. So he got on TV, he defended his honesty, and we all know how honest he was. And he said he had not taken any illegal contributions. There's only one gift that he had received and he was going to hang on to. It was a cocker spaniel puppy given to him and his daughters had bonded with it and named the dog Checkers. And dang it, he was not given that dog back. And then he burst into tears. So the press had a field day with that one, as you can imagine. It's become known by historians as Nixon's Checkers speech. So bad reasons, bad reasons for grown men to cry. According to the article, uh, when fans cry because their sports team has been eliminated from the playoffs, that's a bad reason for guys to cry. So any of you who were around back in 1969 when the Cubs blew a nine and a half game lead to the Miracle Mets, I was a boy, I could cry. If you were a grown man, you shouldn't have. And then there was 1984 when they blew their lead to the Padres. 
Then there was 1989, and there was 1998. There was 2003 when Bartman, remember, he touched the foul ball. There was 2004, 2007, 2015. But who's counting? Yes, yeah. Yeah, not, not a good reason to cry. Now, today we're going to take a look at a time when Jesus cried. When Jesus cried, and he cried for good reason. It's recorded in John chapter 11. So if you brought one of these with you, would you turn with me to John 11? Or you can look for the, the text on your phone or your pad. And this is a special Easter sermon, but it's also the final installment in a seven-part series that we've been enjoying over the last two months at Christ Community Church uh, called The Great I Am. The Great I Am. We've been look, looking at seven I Am claims that Jesus makes about himself in the Gospel of John. And these are, these are audacious claims. I say audacious because they're either true or Jesus was one extremely delusional dude, okay? Because the claims include stuff like, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world, and I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, to God, except through me. Incredible claims. If you missed, by the way, if you missed any of those sermons, I encourage you, go online, watch them. You're going to learn a ton about Jesus. So today, as is fitting on Easter weekend, we're, we're concluding with Jesus' claim, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, I'd like you to read this claim with me out loud. We'll put it on the screen, read it together. This is from John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. We'll read it and then take a look at what it means. Let's go together. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus made this claim upon arriving at the home of a very dear friend, Lazarus, who had just died. In fact, if your Bible is, is open to John chapter 11, drop down to verse 34. And Jesus says, where have you laid him? Where did you put Lazarus' body? Well, come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And then the Jews, Lazarus' friends, said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept. And he had good reason as a grown man to publicly cry. And in fact, let me give you a couple of reasons that have been suggested as to why it was appropriate for Jesus to cry on this occasion. First reason being that crying was, was expected of people in Jesus' culture when somebody dear had died. Okay, according to the, uh, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, which is the collected sayings of the ancient rabbis, if a loved one of yours died, you were required to mourn for 30 days. So the first three days, you were to wail out loud. Okay, the next seven days, you, you weren't required to cry, but you, you were required to continue to lament. And then for the rest of the month, if a loved one died, you were not to shave or take a shower, which brought tears to everybody's eyes, okay? <laughs> So, so the fact that Jesus wept at Lazarus' graveside was, was no surprise. It's what grown men did in that culture. Another reason that people give as to why Jesus' tears would have been totally appropriate was that Lazarus had been a very, very close friend. 
But you see the bystanders say as they watch Jesus weep, verse 36, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. So everybody was willing to give Jesus permission to cry considering the depth of his loss. I mean, he would never, ever, ever, ever see this buddy of his again, right? Wait a minute. You know, that couldn't have been the reason Jesus cried. Why do I say that? Well, because Jesus had arrived in Bethany, Lazarus' hometown, for the purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus knew what he was about to do. He knew that he was about to bring Lazarus back to life. This would be the biggest miracle of Jesus' earthly career. This was the showstopper. Okay, in fact, many people who had been unbelievers, unconvinced about Jesus, when they saw Lazarus brought back from the dead, put their faith in Christ. And this really rankled the jealous religious leaders of the day. They set out to kill Jesus. So Lazarus was raised from the dead end of of winter, and by the beginning of spring, Jesus had been crucified. So so if Jesus, standing at Lazarus' graveside, if he knew that he was about to raise his buddy from the dead, he would not have been weeping for the two reasons I've just given you. He would not have been weeping because it was, you know, uh, customary, socially speaking, to do so, or because he was going to really, really miss his loved one, Lazarus. So why did Jesus cry? And what does that have to do with his I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life? Today, we're going to look at three aspects of that statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And the first one tells us why Jesus cried. If you haven't taken your outline from your program yet, I encourage you to take it out, fill it in as we go along. That, uh, that outline is on your electronic app as well. So three aspects of this I am claim. The first has to do with the tyranny of death. Okay, so just fill that in, fill in the blank. The tyranny of death. Death is a terrible thing. You know, I use the word tyranny to describe it because uh, tyranny means oppressive power. You know, that's what death is. Death, you know, controls our lives. Death commandeers, commandeers our destinies. It's a terrible thing. Now, you would think that would be a pretty obvious observation. Death is a terrible thing, the tyranny of death. But the truth of the matter is, in our culture today, death is getting a facelift. You know, death is getting a new image. There are more and more voices claiming that we have misjudged death. Death has been wrongfully maligned. Death is not a terrible thing. Death is just part of the circle of life. Can you hear Elton John singing the Lion King theme song in the background? The circle of life. The remake is coming out this summer, by the way just part of the circle of life. You know, I I wonder just how widespread has this popular notion become? So I googled it. Almost two billion results. Death is just a a natural part of the circle of life. I decided to watch one of the videos that that was posted. It was a nine-minute animated video about this guy who gets hit by a car, whisked off uh, to the hospital. He's in a coma, and while he's in his coma, he visits, uh, vision, a playground where there are two children, brother and sister, twins on a teeter-totter going up and down. They are life and death, life and death, and they teach this guy an important lesson. The lesson is... You know, we're two sides of the same coin. Doesn't matter which side comes up. 
Okay, because death is really life and life is really death. I watched it and I thought, huh? Really? So, so death, according to this video, death is a gift of nature. Death is your opportunity to be released from the concerns of this world. Death is no big deal. You know, I got to tell you, this past year, I've seen a lot of death in my life. You know, my daughter Rachel has gone through two miscarriages, painful, painful experiences. I have a sister-in-law, Jane, who passed away half a year ago from cancer. Horrible experience, awful way to go. Got a really good friend, Ronnie, great buddy of mine for years here at Christ Community Church. Robust guy, home builder, rugged. He had a heart attack as he walked on a bike path near his home, dropped dead. Right now, as I speak, my dad's battling stage four cancer. Sue just got back from Ohio where she, she was taking care of her dad whose, whose health is failing. I got to tell you, death is a terrible thing. I still believe that. And, and if you don't think, if you think it's a natural part of life to be received, welcomed with equanimity, then I would say to you, so if you go to the doctor this week and tell, tells you you got three months to live, you're going to say, well, that's cool. Natural part of life. I don't think so. You know, Jesus was struck by the tyranny of death, and that's why he wept. Now go back, go back to the text, John 11. I want to go to a couple of verses before he weeps. Pick it up at verse 32. I, I want you to see what happened just before Jesus wept. It says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him. Mar Mary's one of two sisters of Lazarus. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. If you got a Bible, circle deeply moved. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Okay, before Jesus wept, he was deeply moved moved. That same expression pops up again a couple of verses later in the story. If your Bible's open, drop down to verse 37. Some of them said, could not he, could not Jesus, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man, Lazarus, from dying? Jesus, once more, deeply moved, circle it again, deeply moved, came to the tomb. Bible scholars tell us that this expression, deeply moved, doesn't begin to convey in our English translation what it originally meant in the original Greek. They, they tell us that deeply moved as an expression meant really, really angry, outraged. In fact, it was used to describe, in the first century, this expression, deeply moved, was used to describe the snorting of a horse that was all worked up. So Jesus is honking mad, and you say, okay, I get sad, you know, but why mad? Why so indignant? Let me, let me try to summarize with a few broad brush strokes the Bible's storyline. We'll help you understand. God created a beautiful, wonderful, perfect world. You can read about it in the opening pages of Scripture. Elsewhere in the Bible we read it was actually the Son of God, Jesus, who did the creating, the actual creating. 
And then a human couple was placed in this virtual paradise, and they were given just one word of instruction. There was one rule about a tree whose fruit they were not to touch, and it was kind of a test to see if they would trust God, if they really believed in their hearts that God wanted what was best for them. And you know how the story goes. They chose to go their way instead of God's way. And the Bible says every one of us has been doing the same thing ever since. We go our way instead of God's way. God says in his word, don't do this, and we do it. God says, here's what you should do, and we don't do it. It happens many times every day. As a result, we have alienated God. We've disconnected from God. And the trouble with that, if you're, if you're a regular at Christ community, you've heard me say this many times. The trouble with that is when you disconnect from the giver of life, the source of life, the consequence is what? Call it out. It's death. You disconnect from life and you die. The Bible says, Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. So please understand, death was not part of God's original creation design. That's not what God wants for you. It's not what God wants for me. We have brought this on ourselves, beginning with the very first human. Romans 5, verse 12, the Apostle Paul sums it up this way. He says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Death came to all people because all sin, all disconnected from the giver of life. So, so when Jesus, now follow this, when Jesus came face to face with the death of his friend Lazarus, and when he witnessed the heart-wrenching agony that this death caused Lazarus' loved ones, Jesus shook with anger, and then he wept at the realization, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I didn't create life to have it destroyed like this. Now, one Bible commentator writes that Jesus was like a military general. His general and his army comes to liberate a country, and when they enter the country, they, uh, they see burned-out landscape, and they see people with missing limbs, and they see children that are, are naked and starving and without parents. And the blood of this general boils at the carnage that the enemy has left behind. Jesus hates the enemy, death. No, no way is death just a natural part of life. Which brings us to number two, second insight from this expression, I am the resurrection and the life. Number two, the offer of Jesus. Jesus offers us an alternative to death but it requires a response on our part. So let's go back to the text, John 11. Let me read more of the story to you, beginning at verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, this is sister number two, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Someone has joked that the reason Jesus calls Lazarus by name here, Lazarus, come out, as opposed to just shouting a generic, come out, is because if he had just said a generic, come out, every dead body in the vicinity would have come back to life. Yeah. This was a surprising miracle. Now, if you've followed Jesus' life in the gospel accounts, you might wonder, well, why should they be surprised? Hadn't they seen Jesus do all sorts of miracles? Hadn't they seen Jesus open the eyes of the blind? Hadn't they seen Jesus make lame people walk again? Hadn't they seen, seen Jesus cure lepers of their disease? Hadn't they even seen Jesus on a couple of occasions raise people back to life? You might be familiar with those two stories. One was a, the daughter of a synagogue ruler named Jairus. She died. Jesus brought her immediately back to life. The, the other was the son of a widow from a little village called Nain. He died. Jesus immediately brought him back to life. But Lazarus, you see, he was not recently dead. This is, this is a different case. Lazarus was dead dead. And when, when Jesus asked for the stone that sealed off Lazarus' tomb to be, be removed, look at verse 39. Martha objects, he's been there four days. Jewish historians tell us there was a popular belief in Jesus' day that after a person died, the spirit of that person hung around the body for three days in the hopes that maybe the body would be resuscitated. Now, after three days, it kind of gave up and it left and it was over. Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. L look at what else Martha says uh, about her dead brother, verse 39. By this time, there is a bad odor, middle of the verse. I love the old English King James version of this verse. Martha says, but Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, in other words, my, you know, my brother's body has begun to decompose already. Lazarus was dead, dead, and that made Martha and others reluctant to believe that Jesus could do anything about it. He could heal people who were on their way to death. If someone had recently died, he could perhaps raise them from the dead, but he couldn't, he couldn't raise back to life somebody who was dead, dead. What about you? What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus can give life after death? Now think about it. Do you believe that Jesus can give you life after death? So if you don't believe that, then you are stuck with the tyranny of death. Or, you know, maybe you're counting on some other plan for life beyond the grave. Maybe you've got no idea how it's going to happen. You just have sort of a vain hope. And I would say good luck because I don't know of any other plan that has solid evidence to back it up. All other plans I've heard about require blind faith. But in the case of Jesus, we have historically accurate eyewitness accounts that say Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and that a short time later, Jesus himself was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning and he has the same power to do, to do this for you and for me. So I don't know about you, but my, my money's on the guy who's already proved, he's proved that he can do it. And, and so does he, does he do it for everybody? 
Well, let's take a look at what Jesus says, this I am the resurrection and the life statement, his words to Martha when he first arrived at their home. Go back to verse 25 and 26 again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. In other words, they'll they'll physically pass away, but death will become a doorway into eternal life. And then Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this? Now, let me point out something very important in Jesus' I am statement here, because I don't want you to miss it. Jesus does not say, I give resurrection and life. He could have put it that way, and that would have been true. He gives resurrection and life, but that's not how he puts it. He doesn't say, I give resurrection and life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, if we want eternal life, it's not a commodity that we acquire. Hey, give me some of that eternal life. It's a person. It's to be found in Jesus. Jesus offers us himself. If we want eternal life, we got to have Jesus. You get it? Good. Good. Now, remember what I said to you earlier? I want to explain why why it's got to be Jesus. Remember what I said earlier. We go our way instead of God's way. We disconnect from the giver of life. That's why we die. So this is a problem. And what can we do about it? The answer is absolutely nothing. There's nothing you can do about it. The the penalty has got to be paid. Now, fortunately for us, God loves us so much that he sent his son to take the penalty. Jesus came to planet Earth He laid down his life of infinite worth because he's the eternal son of God. He died the death you and I deserve to die. That's what he was doing on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead on Easter morning, and he alone now has the power and the authority to forgive your sins, the sins that will lead to your death. He alone has the power and the authority to give you new life if you'll surrender your life to him. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This this life, everlasting life, is to be found in him. You got to have him. Do you have Jesus? Have have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus? Has Jesus become your savior, your king, the leader of your life? You know, apart from Jesus giving you life, there is no life to be had. And Christianity emerged in a world where death was a pretty prominent topic. In our world, we we tend to uh, keep it out of sight. But in the first century, you know what the average lifespan was in the first century? What do you think the life expectancy was? Today, it's something like 79, 80 years. What do you think it was in the first century? Call it out. I hear 40, I hear 45. How about 20? 20. Infant mortality rate, 30%. One out of three babies died at birth. In fact, historians tell us that most people didn't name their babies for a week or two because it might not be around that long. Less than 50% of children live to age five. About 40% of people live to age 20. Death was a big deal. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene declaring, I am the resurrection and the life, and then he proves it. 
He proves it by raising Lazarus from the dead. He proves it by rising from the dead himself. There are eyewitnesses who will verify it. The Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15 says, I've encountered over 500 people who saw Jesus alive after he was risen from the dead. Talk to them. No wonder in the first couple of centuries the church exploded with growth as people got on the Jesus bandwagon. They said, this is what I I want Jesus if life is to be found in him. Do you have Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to him, the resurrection and the life? There's a third lesson from this I am claim that I want to look at, and it has to do with the beginning of new life. The beginning of new life. There is one last sentence in today's scripture text that I want to read to you because it it sort of uh, sums up the Lazarus story in an amusing way. Okay, look at the last half of verse 44. Uh, After Lazarus steps out of the tomb, he's wrapped up like like a mummy. You could picture this. And Jesus said to them, the bystanders, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, you could just hear Lazarus. Jesus says, let let the dude go. So here's the interesting point I'd like to make from this closing line uh, of the story. Lazarus' life on this earth had just been extended for an unknown quantity of time. Now, according to church tradition, uh, he lived another 30 years. And so, yes, Jesus would give him eternal life in the world to come, but Lazarus had new life that had just begun in this world. And that's how it works with the life that Jesus gives us. When we surrender to him, it doesn't just result in life after death. It results in new life now. Jesus resurrected Lazarus and then set him loose in this world uh, with an immediate plan and a purpose for his life, just as Jesus does for you and for me when we become followers of his. You know, the Apostle Paul, I love the way he sums this up in one phrase. He's writing to a young man by the name of Timothy, one of our New Testament letters, epistles. He comes to the end of the letter, chapter 6, and he's giving a bunch of directives to Christ followers. This is how you're to live. He says things like, you know, give generously. Okay, become a generous person. Give. He says, serve. Look for ways to serve and do good works. He says, make God central to your life. He's giving one directive after another. And then, as if he wants to sum the whole thing up in one line, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, he says, take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that. Take hold of the life that is truly life. Life. Friends, every one of you who is listening to me today, either at one of our campuses or on, online, you're alive. But are you really living? Capital L, living. You have life. But are you taking hold of the life that is truly life? The kind of life which only Jesus, the resurrection and the life can give. When he begins to set your priorities and direct your decisions and give you a sense of mission. See, Christianity is not just about eternal life in the world to come. If that's the case, then let's get together once a year at Easter. We'll make a big hoopla about Jesus and then we'll go on our way for the rest of the year and virtually ignore him. Oh, we'll bring him up at Christmas time maybe. But if Christianity is about new life now, if Christianity is about the life that Jesus can give you every single day, then let's learn everything we can from his book about how to live that life. Let's get together once a week and celebrate him and learn even 
more about this new life that begins the moment you surrender your life to him. I read a book, just finished a book about a guy who grabbed hold of the life that is truly life. I love to read biographies, especially of great leaders. And it doesn't matter what field they're a leader in. I read biographies of leaders and you know, in, in business and in politics, military, uh, rock and roll, sports. And so I just finished a, a biography about a business leader by the name of James Cash Penny, as in J.C. Penny. Okay, so back in 1902, J.C. Penny, at the age of 26, he opened his first store in a little town in Wyoming. In his store, you could bear, buy a pair of Levi's for 58 cents. Try getting that at the Gap, huh? right? And he, he experienced great success. By the 1960s, there were over 1,700 J.C. Penney stores around the country, most of them in rural, little towns of a thousand or less. It was the largest retail chain at the time, most stores of any retail chain. He, he was a successful man. Now, I want to go back to 1931 because he hit, he hit a bump in the road back then. He was already wealthy in 1931, but there was this thing called the Depression going on. The stock market had collapsed. J.C. Penney had gone broke. And so he was traveling around the country trying to inspire, trying to breathe morale into his store managers. And in the process, he just drained the life out of himself. And so when he got to Grand Rapids, Michigan, he checked himself into a sanitarium. You know, all of his financial energy, physical energy, emotional energy, it was spent. He wanted to end his life. In fact, he wrote goodbye letters to his wife and his two daughters. And then one night, he was padding around the darkened hallways of the sanitarium, and he heard some music, some people singing in a little chapel down the hall. And he, he stepped in and sat in a back row, and it was a group of patients singing an old church song called, God Will Take Care of You. And when they broke between songs, somebody read a, a passage of Scripture out loud from Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, if you're weary, if you're burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. J.C. Penney bowed his head in that back row and he surrendered his life to Jesus and everything began to change. Everything. His biographer writes, and by the way, this is a secular biography. Just picked it up. It was a bestseller. And so I, I you know, not a Christian book. The biographer said he had a supernatural encounter with God that changed everything. Now, J.C. Penney had grown up as a child going to church. He was an extremely moral man. I mean, the dude had high standards. He would not hire any manager who smoked or drank or gambled. And he was known for his, his relentless honesty in business. But he didn't know God. God had been marginalized to the edge of his life. He'd never surrendered his life to Christ until that night. And that's when he got the new life. He met the resurrection and the life. And the new life began the minute J.C. Penney surrendered to Christ. He went back home and he started caring for his kids, who he had routinely ignored up to then because of business concerns. And he began to give away large sums of money. As quickly as he made money, he was giving it away to worthy causes. He loved to give. 
He got in, involved in the lives of the people who worked for him, intimately involved. He, he was concerned about their personal lives. He couldn't stop talking about Jesus everywhere he went. In fact, J.C. Penney, public uh, uh, corporation statements at the time, you'll see Jesus mentioned time and again. He had met the resurrection and the life, and it changed his life beginning the moment he surrendered. Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you ever said, I want you to be the Savior, the King of my life? I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Would you bow with me? I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer across our four campuses. For those of you who are watching online, just a quiet moment because I'm going to ask you to make the most important decision of your life. If you've never surrendered to Christ, I want to remind you there's a reason Jesus cries. He weeps over the tyranny of death. He weeps over those who refuse to come to him to find life, life eternal and new life now. He's brokenhearted for anyone who would say no to him. And so if this is your day to surrender to Jesus, here's, here's how you do it. We like to say it can be summed up in three basic words. So let me give you the words and ask you to pray from your heart in the quietness of your heart. The first word is sorry. That's where it begins, where you say, I am sorry for going my way instead of your way. I'm sorry for running my own life and running it into the ground, morally speaking. I'm sorry, you name the sin. What's your specialty? Is it lust? Is it pride? Is it a lack of concern for the poor, a heartlessness? Is it gossip, stuff that comes out of your mouth. What is it? Just say, I am so sorry because I recognize now that's why Jesus had to die, to take the death I deserve. Tell him sorry in your own words. I'll pause and let you do that. The second word is thanks. Now you understand that Jesus died, not just for the world, not just as a martyr, not just as an, an innocent man that the bad guys got the better of. He died deliberately by his choice to take the punishment your sins deserve. Have you ever told him, thank you, thank you, and I want you to be my savior. I want what was done on the cross for others to be done for me. Can you thank him now and tell him in your own words you want him? You want the forgiveness and new life that he offers. Okay, if you've said sorry from your heart and you've said thanks from your heart, the final word is please. And this is where you say, please come into my life. Please take, take up residency on the throne of my life. I've been a little king. I've been a little queen sitting on the throne of my life. I'm getting up out of the throne and I'm giving that place to you. I want you to be my king. I want you to be my leader. I want to learn what it means to follow you. Please Please, oh, resurrection and life, come into my life. Would you, would you pray the please prayer right now from your heart? By the way, if you've prayed this prayer before, as you're bowed before God right now, you say, well, I've done that in the past. I've said sorry, thanks, please. And yet you look at your life today, Easter 2019, and you realize you've kind of marginalized Jesus, shoved him back out to the edge again. You know, for you... 
It's been a life insurance policy so that after you die, you get heaven, you get forgiveness. But what about now? Are you living for Jesus now? Maybe it's time for you, if you claim to be a Christ follower, to say, oh, I want to dedicate my life to following you, Jesus. I want you to be first in my life. Now, if you made that decision, while we're still bowed in prayer, I want to ask you to do one last thing, and it's a physical thing, because the decision you just made, you made in your heart. Nobody could see it. The person sitting next to you doesn't know what you've done in your heart. In fact, tomorrow morning, you might doubt, did I really do that? Did I really mean that? Did I really surrender to Jesus? So if you just surrendered to Christ and prayed, sorry, thanks, please, here's the physical thing I I want you to do for your sake so you remember from this day on that I made this decision. Just stick your hand in the air for one second and then put it back down. Okay? Yep. Put it up. Good. See it all across the auditorium. If you just surrendered to Christ, just put a hand in the air. If you're watching online, seated in your easy chair, just put your hand in the air and back down again. If you're in DeKalb, In Streamwood, in Aurora, as well as here in St. Charles, up in the balcony, you say, yeah, I want Jesus to be the resurrection and life in my life. Just put your hand in the air and back down. Again, it's not like Christ needs to see your hand, but you need to put it up there to say, I really mean it. I want this. Anybody else? Lord God, thank you for the work that you do in our hearts. And again, I pray, uh, knowing that There's a great many who are listening right now who have already made this decision, but the question is, are we living it? Would you help us to live the new life that Christ has given us? We pray in his holy name. Amen.